0: If you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be in the end of uh, the chapter this week and get down into chapter 3. We'll be in 1 John uh, 2 verse 26 down to 1 John 3 uh, verse 3. Now you may remember as we've worked our way through John's first letter here uh, that he has uh, a set of teaching that he's trying to combat. And that's a teaching that we've uh, come come through time to label as Gnosticism. And that's the idea that the gospel itself isn't enough, that Christ isn't enough, but rather we need some sort of higher knowledge, some secret knowledge that isn't in the original gospel itself. What we're going to get into today begins to identify the nature of that teaching for us. So up to now, uh, we've seen John instructing the church, but he hasn't necessarily called out the false teachers directly. He's going to do that today, and so it's going to be a little bit of a different tone. Now, as you remember, he said there are three primary ways that we can know if we know Christ. Now, as, as if you walked through this, maybe go ahead and try to list them ahead in your own mind. Uh, I don't know, jog your memory to see, see if you can get through. them. So the first test we said is the truth test. And that is, do you know, do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you believe God as he's revealing scripture and the fact that he sent his son Jesus to die for sins? Secondly is... The, the, the life test, do you live in a way that shows that you know Jesus? In other words, if we look at your life through time, is it one that demonstrates Christ's likeness? And the third test is the love test. Now we see in scripture, of course, uh, the general command to love your neighbor as yourself. This focus in 1 John is particularly, do you love the family of God? In other words, do you love the church? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? So with that stage set, John tonight is going to begin to address the false teaching itself. So he's kind of been arming them. Here's how you can know if you know Christ. And now he begins to call them out specifically. So 1 John 2, verse 26. 1 John 2, 26, we'll read down to chapter 3, verse 3. John writes, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So you see here he's, he's labeling who he's, what he's addressing here. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not strength from him and shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, we've said that there are a handful of times uh, in this letter where John specifically tells us why he's writing this letter. And verse 26 is one of these times, I write these things to you, he says, about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's telling us right here, I'm writing about false teachers, people who are actively trying to lead you away from the truth. So this verse gives us some information that we haven't seen before, namely, that this church, these believers that he's writing to are being directly targeted by people who are trying to deceive them. Now, he doesn't specifically say what they're trying to deceive them with, but we know that based on what he's taught them. And so we know this false teaching attacks three areas, namely one, the identity of Christ and the gospel itself. So they've tried to say that Jesus, the son of God, isn't the Savior, or a sufficient Savior of himself. So we know that one area they've targeted is who Jesus is. Secondly, he's targ- they've targeted the fruit of good works in the life of a believer. We know this because he's emphasizing how, it imp- how important it is and how they live. And thirdly, if you're tracking the pattern, they're attacking relationships in the body of Christ. In other words, how we ought to love one another. So the fruit of this teaching attacks these three areas, Christ's identity, the way we live, the fruit of the gospel in our lives, and then love in the body of Christ. But there's something that this church has that has prepared them and armed them for this. And he identifies this for us in verse 27. He calls it the anointing. Now, you may remember uh, last week in verses 20 and 21, we began to get into this idea. So if you look up just a few verses in verse 20, he writes, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. Now that's an unusual name for the Holy Spirit. We know this because uh, he's talking about anointing here and this anointing is a particular kind of anointing, a word that's used of the Spirit's anointing uh, not of a different kind of anointing. And so John says, you're ready for this because you've been anointed by the Spirit of God and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, he doesn't mean that they don't need to learn. Well, why do we know this? Because he's teaching them. So they still need uh, to be taught. But he does say they don't need the kind of teaching that, that these false teachers are saying. So he doesn't, he's not saying no teaching is necessary. Rather, he's saying no teaching in addition to the, scripture, the teaching of Scripture is necessary. So the anointing, the revealing of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer is necessary. But nothing beyond that is. So he's getting at the idea that we don't need a mediator other than Christ. In other words, we don't need some sort of mediating teacher to really explain the Jesus behind scripture. Or uh, like in Roman Catholic doctrine, we don't need a priest other than Jesus Christ. Because the new covenant means that Jesus has already done this work. And he goes on to say his anointing, the anointing of the spirit teaches you about everything. In other words, the spirit of God opens our eyes to the word of God. So, everything in this context is everything as it relates to jesus christ specifically those things that relate to jesus and he says he's taught you this and it's true and is no lie and so the key to this is abiding in him so the teaching from the holy spirit as revealed in god's word is true and then john gets a little bit tricky here because he switches uh, his his pronoun antecedent agreement isn't great here and if if you don't remember what that means Go back to your high school English textbook and you can track that down. We won't get too far into it, but he he uses him to, to refer to the spirit. And now he switches and he talks about him and he's talking about Jesus. And we know that because he talks about this one. So he's talking about being anointed by him. And now he says that this other him is going to appear. And so we know this is Jesus. Verse 28. So now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shriek from him at his coming. So again, he's getting at the idea of abiding in Christ. We know this is a reference to Christ because he's talking about the moment Jesus appears. So, what does he say is the key to being ready to meet Jesus when he appears? To abide in him, to remain in him. It's it's a call to keep walking with Christ, to persevere, to walk with Jesus. And then he tells us something about the character of Christ. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that if you practice righteousness, you're born of him. So here he gets into that second test, that life test. In other words, if you live in a way, a righteous way is the way he says here, you know that you're born of the righteous one. If Jesus is righteous, if you live a life of good works, if you live a righteous life, you know that you know Jesus. In other words, you act like your family. Your family probably has certain sayings or certain traditions that no other family has. Maybe every other family thinks it's weird, but in your family, you know it's cool because that's how you do it. And what he's saying here is there are family traits or family characteristics for those in the family of God, and one of those is practicing righteousness. If you know God, you'll act like it. If God is your father, you'll act like it. If Jesus is your brother, you'll act like it. We act rightly, not because we're good, the Bible says we're not, that we're sinners, but because we are children of a righteous God. And if we're children of a righteous God, then his kids act righteously. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So this brings us then to chapter verse one of chapter three. And it begins talking here about the kind of remarkable love that God gives his children. See what kind of love the father has given to us. Now he's talking here about a particular characteristic or quality of love and what kind of love is it that he's talking about it's family love it's the love of having a family it's like we're orphan sinners wandering and then god brings us into his family well how do we know that it's because he explains it god's love is that we should be called what god's children the children of god and so we are So when you talk about what kind of love, uh, this is a phrase that's often used to refer to someone from another country or a foreigner, what kind of person that is. And he's saying that God takes people who are foreigners and brings them into his family. God's love is so unusual, it changes everything about us. It changes our relationship with him. He's now our father, and it changes our relationship to one another. So you see here, he's talking about righteous living, that's the life test. Now he's talking about the love test, the love that we have from God, our Father. Now, how does family love change our relationship to God and to each other? It means that as much as people who have been loved by God ought to love everyone, it means that we have a special responsibility to love each other. In other words, if I'm walking, I don't know, through a park or the mall, and there are a bunch of kids running around, you expect that there are gonna be three kids that I'm particularly responsible for. Why is that? Because they're my children. Now, of course, there's a sense in which hopefully, as as just one, as being people made in the image of God, as good human beings, we look out for one another. Uh, certainly, we kind of watch out, but there's a particular sense in which you recognize I'm responsible Uh, to care for them, to to look out for them, to put food on the table, to, to protect them from harm in a different way than I am from every child in the world. And so what this means is that when we know God by faith in Christ, God looks out for us in a particular way. He cares for us in a particular way. There's a special kind of love, the same kind of love that he gives his own son, he bestows, he gives to us. Now, there's a temptation in all of us, and that's a temptation to look for this love and acceptance in the wrong place. And he gets at that in the second half of verse one. He says, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. What this tells us is we all long for love. We all long for acceptance, but we're tempted to find it in the wrong place. Even as Christians, it's tempting to want to be accepted by the world to be desire to be accepted by the people that matter less or those outside. But what he says here, the world didn't accept Jesus. It crucified him. So it's not, we shouldn't expect that it will love and embrace Christian teaching or Christian people. It doesn't love Christians because it doesn't love Christ. And so when we experience rejection that way, we're just identifying with our savior. He goes on in verse two to talk about what it means to be God's children. And what we have now is just a small taste of this beloved. He says, we are God's children now. So we are God's kids now, but we haven't been fully. We haven't fully received all the benefits of that. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So in other words, there's more coming. We're getting a little taste now, but there's more of this coming. We know that when he appears, We shall be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. So, what we can see now, we can see Christ is revealed in Scripture, but we don't know him face to face or see him face to face. But on that day when he appears, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him clearly. So, there's a contrast in this verse. And what's the contrast? It's between what we are today and what we will be. What we are today is God's children that don't look fully. Like his children. So there are aspects of our lives that, I don't know, do reflect the character of Christ. Hopefully, we're growing in our desire for God's word. Hopefully, we're growing in reflecting God's character. But any one of us who's honest has to admit there are also areas of our life that don't reflect God's character areas of selfishness or pride or saying things we shouldn't say or thinking things we shouldn't think or looking where we ought not to look. So we've got what we are now, which is imperfect reflections of Christ. And there's what we're going to be, which is perfect or complete on that day. So we've got a little taste of it now, but it's not here yet. And we don't even know, he says, yet fully what we we don't even know what it's what it is that we're going to be. But we do know that when we see him we'll be like him. So how today do we become more like him? Well, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 tells us that we do this by beholding his glory, by looking at Christ and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, we become like Jesus by looking at Jesus, by beholding him particularly in his word. We'll be like him because we'll be with him. So what we see is what what we behold is what we become. And so as we look to Christ, verse three tells us one effect that this has in our life. Everyone who hopes in Christ, who looks to his coming purifies himself as he is pure. So what is it that motivates us to live pure and righteous lives today? It's the hope of seeing Jesus face to face and being like him. Uh, This idea of purity appears seven times in the New Testament, and it's to give us a picture of what Jesus is like in contrast to everything else. And that's what we're to be like as Christians. We're to give Uh, the world around us, a different picture of what life looks like, a different quality of love, a different, uh, different expectation for loving, righteous, sacrificial living. He goes on to say in verse five that he appeared in order to take away sin. So one of the effects of Jesus' presence in our lives is the removal of sin from us. So what we've got here is this whole continuum. There are these false teachers saying Christ isn't enough. So don't be deceived. How ultimately do we keep from being deceived by this false teaching? He says here, it's by looking to Jesus, by looking to his return and longing for that day. And if we do that, we'll press forward in life. And we don't know yet what we're going to be, but we will be like him if we keep walking and looking to Christ we become what we behold. And if we look to Christ, we become increasingly like our brother, Jesus Christ, who teaches us to reflect the character of God our Father. Well, hopefully this has been an encouragement to you tonight. I know it is to me both to think about how God uh, teaches us to love one another, but also what a privilege it is to be called sons and daughters of God. What a gift that God our Father would make us His children.